for organizing this and for inviting me. And thank, of course, to Lynn for her wonderful um, start to today. As you know, today we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Paris premiere of The Rite of Spring, this extraordinary total work of art by the Ballet Russe. But the 29th of May is a significant and faithful day for at least two other important events. These are, in chronological order, the fall of Constantinople <laughs> to the Ottoman forces of Mehmet II on the 29th of May 1453, according to the Julian calendar, and of course illustrated in this uh, painting. Do I have, is there a pointer here? Is yes, this there a, is, yeah. a pointer? Excellent. Um, and of course, the second one is the premiere in Paris of La Premidie d'un Fond on the 29th of May 1912, another famous and controversial <coughs> work by the Ballet Russe, the first to be choreographed by Václav Nijinsky, and which can be seen as a precursor of the Rite of Spring in more than one way. Now, I think it is most unlikely that in 1912, Sergei Diaghilev chose the 29th of May as the date for the premiere of La Premidie d'un Fond because it coincided with the anniversary of the fall of Constantinople. <laughs> but reportedly, he chose the date of the premiere of The Rite of Spring to coincide with that of La Premidie d'un Fond because of his superstitious belief that this concurrence would be auspicious of similar success and or notoriety. And quite right he was. But La Premidie d'Enfant represents a precursor for the Rite of Spring, not only for this deliberate chronological correspondence, for its success, notoriety, and, of course, choreography by Nijinsky. Both ballet also show a modernist favor, although much more marked in the Rite of Spring, which partly drew inspiration, almost paradoxically, from a rather distant past, from ancient archaeological materials. In other words, both works well illustrate the fascination of early 20th century artists with the primitive or archaic. Now, it is usually accepted that the sets and costumes created by Leon Baxt for Fon were largely or at least partly inspired by ancient Greece and more particularly by frieze-like representations such as those found on Greek sculpture or black or red figure Greek pottery of the archaic and classical periods, that is the 7th and 5th century BC. While Rurik's designs for the rite used ethnographic materials and were also partly inspired by an even more distant prehistoric and I think largely reinvented Slavic past. It is not generally realized, however, that Baxt was also partly inspired by a distant prehistoric past dating to the 3rd and 2nd millennium BC, the past of Bronze Age Greece, and especially Bronze Age or Minoan Crete, which had been rediscovered in the early 1900s through a number of excavations of which the most famous are those conducted by Sir Arthur Evans at Knossos in the so-called palace or labyrinth of King Minos, excavations that started in 1900 and went on until 1931. And even those scholars who have acknowledged 
uh, Bach's great passion for prehistoric Greece, have not usually provided precise illustrations for his actual borrowings, especially concerning his productions for the Ballet Russe. This is partly because, I think, the devil is in the detail. Some of his borrowings often can be found in minute elements of his costume designs, and only minoan specialists can notice them. So my own contribution today will be a brief exploration of some of Bach's prehistoric sources of inspiration for the faun and also for other Greek ballet produced for the Ballet Russe before the Rite of Spring, or around the same time as the Rite of Spring. But before I illustrate some of Bach's specific borrowings from prehistoric Greece, let me explain how this Russian artist became interested in the more primitive Minoan culture. Bach's strong fascination with prehistoric Greece, and with Crete in particular, derived from both his general interest in Greek art and his own sensitivity to modernist artistic developments, which in turn increased his appreciation of more primitive or archaic styles. Now, Bach's general interest in ancient Greece seems to have been prompted to a large extent by his involvement with the production of the stage designs and costumes of three Greek tragedies, Hippolytus, Oedipus et Colonos, and Antigone, that were performed in St. Petersburg between 1902 and 1904. Here in this slide you see some of his sketches for Hippolytus. And while working on these productions, Bach spent much time in the Hermitage Museum studying Greek art and started dreaming about visiting Greece one day, as attested by his <coughs> correspondence with his wife. Now, he was able to fulfill this wish in May, June 1907, when he travelled to Greece with his friend and fellow artist, Valentin Serov. This journey included excursions to important prehistoric sites on mainland Greece, such as Mycenae, and most importantly, a visit to the island of Crete and a close encounter with Minoan material culture. Bax described his journey to Crete in, again in letters to his wife, and also many years later in a little book entitled Serov and Die in Greece, which he published in 1923. And in addition to his travel memoirs, a number of sketches made during his Greek travels have uh, survived. Uh, to my knowledge, there are two main sets of Bach's Greek sketches. One is in St. Petersburg and the other one in the public library in New York. Here you can see examples from St. Petersburg and here a mixture of um, some of his sketches from St. Petersburg, uh, and obviously the ones that are published, the ones in St. Petersburg are those with the captions beneath, and the other ones are those kept in the New York Public Library. And I think most of them are still unpublished. Now, beside um, travels, uh, I should point out that, of course, these are sketches that he made, for example, in some on the archaeological sites themselves and some actually sitting in the uh, museum and copying very minute details of um, objects. Uh, to anybody who knows anything about prehistoric Greece, this material would be very, very um, familiar. 
But besides um, Bach's travel memoirs, sketches, and paintings, and theatrical works, I think another important source for understanding the influence of Minoan art uh, on this artist is his essay entitled The Paths of Classicism in Art that he published in 1909. In this essay, in which Minoan Crete plays a very important part, Baxt discussed the history of classicism in European art and analyzed aspects of contemporary artistic developments in paintings, praising in particular the works of Gauguin and Matisse. In addition, Baxt presented his vision for an art of the future, suggesting that artists should pay more attention to simplicity and to the human body. Indeed, he suggested that artists should worship the beauty of the human form and nudity. And in doing so, he suggested that they should learn some lessons from the Greek past. But which Greek past? Baxt argued that modern artists needed to eschew too sophisticated, too exquisite models, such as Phidias and Praxiteles, and should look instead towards more primitive or archaic forms, and should be also inspired by the drawings of children. According to Baxt, primitive and children's work suited modern taste and the future classical art because of three main qualities that characterize them as well as all great art. What he called sincerity or lapidary style, that is a focus on essential lines, second, movement, and third, bright, clean color. And Minoan Crete was for Baxt the primitive and childlike perfect model. To use his own words, he said, we know of the clamorous success enjoyed now in Europe by the Cretan culture, newly uncovered by Evans. Yesterday it was virtually unknown, but today it constitutes a new order of antique art and one that is so close and familiar to us. This art is full of unexpected audacity, of unreasoned impudent solutions and of shining victories. From behind the turbulent frescoes peers the keen eye of the Cretan artist, an eternally smiling child. From such an art, it would be possible to cut a shoot and graft it into our own art. And Bakht practiced what he preached, at least to some extent. He certainly grafted Minoan art into his own, and in the process he arguably created something equally impudent but also more sensual, reflecting his own modern view of the human body. Now, because time is running up, uh, <laughs> it's very, very unsettling to have this. <laughs> but, uh, but very, very good. Um, and, and because of, obviously also because of the theme of this conference, I'm going to limit myself to examples of Minoan borrowings to very few of Bach's work for the Ballet Russe, and especially, of course, Fon. But I should like to mention that um, Bach's most Minoan works were really created for other theatrical productions, and in particular for his muse, Isa, uh, sorry, for his muse, Ida Rubinstein, who was a member of the Ballet Russe, in the early years of this company, and was even supposed to be the tall nymph in La Prémédie uh, d'Enfant, but by 1911 she had already started to stage 
other works as her own impresario. Now, among the earliest examples of Bach's grafting of Minoan art into his own are costumes for ballets with Greek themes, naturally. Uh, Greek themes, that, uh, ballets that he produced for Diaghilevs, such as Narcisse and Daphnis and Chloe. For example, uh, elements, Minoan elements can be found in the costume illustrated in this slide, which was actually originally um, produced for uh, Ida Rubinstein Elendes part, but was reused for uh, three brigands in Daphnis and Croy, as we can actually see from a note in uh, Bach's hand. You say Daphnis and Croy, three brigands. Uh, and as you can see, you really have to look at the details of the um, costumes uh, that decorate this, which are all taken from very, very well-known um, Minoan, uh, the Minoan uh, pottery um, repertoires. And, of course, there is always a difference between the costume designs and what is actually produced. And we can see here, again, in this costume for uh, Daphnis and Chloe, that the lily, or, um, sorry, not lily, this is the um, stylized papyrus uh, reproduced here on, on an actual um, costume. But, of course, before, uh, in fact, Daphnis and Chloe, uh, I mean, I could have, I should say, I could have shown you also examples from Narcisse, from other, but as I said, the time is right now. So um, I decided to show you just one from another costume and focus mostly on uh, Fawn. Um, of course, before Daphnis and Chloe, in fact, um, Paris audiences. Um, so, La Premedida and Fawn, choreographed by Nijinsky to the music of the prelude by Debussy, which in turn had been inspired by Mallarmé's eponymous poem. And Baxt took some inspiration from prehistoric Crete, also for this ballet, although I should say that in some cases, of course, the inspiration could have come from similar iconography uh, that he found also in later, in archaic classical Greece of the 7th and 5th century, rather than 2nd millennium, 3rd millennium, Minoan Crete. But I think what we are seeing here, in a sense, is a kind of a, um, a typical example of Bach's modernist fusion, that is eclectic mixing of Minoan and archaic Greek elements to create something new. For example, the ivy motif used in the costume of uh, the nymphs, uh, in some of the costumes for the nymphs, could have certainly come from standard ivy motifs in Minoan Crete, but it has fair to say that it also appears in uh, later uh, pottery. The combination of um, wavy lines and spirals and dotted motifs, I think, though, is more likely to have been partly inspired from details seen on frescoes from Knossos that were sketched by Baxt, and here is an, I mean, this is Baxt uh, sketch. And certainly, if we look again at the sketches of, made by Baxt for some of the um, 
costumes for the nymphs, we can see, as I said, the combination of the wavy line and uh, uh, spira is something that you can find only, not in later Greek archaic pottery, but only in Bronze Age pottery. And similarly, I think this motif, which appears in this sketch, I don't think it appears in the actual costume, but in the sketch um, for an, uh, another nymph, is certainly taken from pottery that Buxt um, would have seen in the Heraklion um, Museum in, during his visit in 1907. But, of course, if we look at the actual costumes... Uh, sorry, I have to go back here. And um, I wanted to note that also, the, at least in the sketches, the overall shape of the costumes is much more reminiscent than uh, prehistoric uh, second millennium, late second millennium BC figurines than actually than actual classical uh, Greek statues or uh, things we can see on uh, black figure or red figure uh, vases. But of course, the actual costumes um, used. Um, in the ballet are rather different and they are less stylized, much more classicizing, that is much more reminiscent of archaic and classical Greece than Bronze Age um, Greece. Indeed, if we look at the overall appearance of the nymphs and the costumes actually used in 1912, yes, I think on the whole the strongest link one can see probably are on the whole with archaic with the archaic Greek world of the 7th and 6th century BC. And, one, and this, perhaps one might argue, works very well for the ballet for the, from the point of view of the total work of art, given the music of Debussy and its ultimate inspiration from the poem of, by Mallarmé, which of course would have been very familiar to Parisian audiences and were both composed well before um, the existence of minoran culture had even been recognized. So, and yet, I think, if one looks again at very specific details, I think at least three further minoran elements or connections can be identified. First, in both archaic Greek and minoran iconography, female hairstyle is characterized by heads of curly hair and long curly locks. And we know that Baxt did sketch the Knossos fresco of the so-called dancing lady, as well as other Minoan frescoes showing this feature. Indeed, if we look at the nymphs in um, Fon, they have extremely long locks of hair. And again, at, you know, reaching their knees, in fact, uh, their hips or even almost to their knees. And again, this is something that is very, very typical of Minoan iconography, whereas in archaic Greek core, usually the locks reach either the shoulder or down um, to the breast. Second, some of the 1912 photographs suggest that the nymphs wore makeup that highlighted their eyes and lips. And this, yet again, is something that is very typical of Minoan iconography 
as, for example, exemplified in the so-called Parisienne fresco from Consos, something that, again, Bast had sketched during his uh, journey. And... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I, could I carry on for two minutes? Okay. <laughs> it's really unsettling. Um, and as I... As I, as I, as I um, and I think this is even more important when we think that at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, people, um, very few people had realized that the white marble statues of Greece were in fact very brightly painted. And we know for sure that Baxt associated bright, vivid colors with Minoan Crete and not with archaic and classical Greece. And third and finally, one of the most characteristic and novel elements of Fawn was arguably the profile, angular, frieze-like posture of the dancers. Now, it is usually suggested that this posture was inspired by Greek relief carvings and vase paintings, together, of course, with other influences, <coughs> such as the symbolist, stylized theater of Meyerhold. But, of course, depictions of... Um, Figures in such postures are also common in Minoan and in Egyptian art and other arts as well. And this too could have inspired Baxt, Diaghilev, and ultimately uh, Nijinsky. Now, I wouldn't want to stress this point too much, but this gesture is very reminiscent of the gesture found in this uh, well-known, famous um, uh, Minoan fresco. Now, to sum up and conclude, <laughs> can I have an, another minute? Uh, in this paper, I've suggested that Fawn represents a forerunner of the Rite of Spring, not only in terms of the date of its premiere, success, notoriety, and innovative choreography by Nijinsky, but also for the inspiration taken from a more primitive, from a more archaic world in Bach's designs. Bax did graft prehistoric Minoan elements into his work for the Ballet Russe, including Faun, and perhaps more than has been previously acknowledged, because this can be seen only very often in just tiny specific details. In fact, Baxt seems to have fused, in a modernist, eclectic manner, elements from archaic Greece and Minoan Crete in an attempt to create a more archaic and therefore also more modern appearance for this ballet, in accordance to his own artistic manifesto. The result, however, was perhaps not entirely successful, at least, I would say, in modernist terms. There is something still too naturalistic and classicizing in Bach's work for this ballet, and it is reported that Nijinsky found the sets and costumes too billowy, not sufficiently austere for his tastes. Now, on the one hand, one could argue perhaps that an overall appearance that was a bit more Greek, archaic, but still recognizably Greek for this ballet actually works better with the music of Debussy and the poem of Mallarmé, and therefore works better from the point of view of the total work of art. But, on the other hand, had Baxt dared to follow his own artistic manifesto more closely, had he produced more Minoan costumes, the results might have been more primitive, more lapidary, more modernist, and perhaps more attuned to Nijinsky's own ideas. 
And as we know, Nijinsky's more stylized and modernist aspirations found some fulfillment only a year later in the Rite of Spring. But perhaps they also found fulfilled some fulfillment also in Ted Sean's Gnossienne of 1919 and Paul Taylor's Images of 1977, a ballet that pays homage to Nijinsky's form through his use of frozen profiles and choreography to the music of Debussy, but also, of course, employs Minoan costumes. Thank you very much. And apologies for boys. <laughs> Expediency. I think I will now introduce uh, Alexander Schwan, who is our next speaker. He is a research fellow at the Institute for Theatre Studies of the Free University of Berlin, and he's currently organising a conference. In, on the right of spring in November 19, uh, 2013.